In daytime sword fishing, Richard Stanzik is a true innovator. Richard purchased the historic Bud Mary's Marina in the late 70s, and for the last 40 plus years, many great captains docked their boats at this historic location. A true bone fisherman at heart, his fame grew after refining the art of catching these Bildensians from the deep. What an incredible life he's had, and this is his story. We broke everything, we broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way, so I double lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Richard, thank you so much for joining us um, today. And I know initially you were probably suspect as to who, who the hell are these guys. But I know that we've been thinking and seeing Bud and Mary's Marina here for the last 35 years and seeing and hearing about you and your family and what you've done with the daytime sword fishing. And I know that you got a huge passion for bonefish. And uh, we are here to say hello and have you tell us your story, you know? And I guess the the opening question is, wow. <laughs> well, Andy, uh, thank you so much. I, I consider it a privilege uh, to be here today and to be able to uh, to tell you my story, you know? And uh, you mentioned 35 years when in truth, uh, Bud Mary's goes back to 1945, which is a long time. Actually, this year we're kind of celebrating our 75th year, of which I... Uh, I've been here for 42, but I actually started fishing here 52 years ago. So uh, I don't know where you really want to start. I, well, I, I want to start with a question. Okay. How did you get into fishing? Was your dad into fishing? I mean, what? No, I mean, my dad uh, My dad got seasick. He was uh, what I call a spiritual giant. He, uh, he came from poverty in Detroit and uh, managed to work his way up to becoming a World champion weightlifter. He actually won the Olympics in 1948, 1952. Wow. And six world championships and uh, had quite a war record. Right. Yeah. And um, he, uh, he... He fought World War Two. He did in the Philippines. Yes. Yeah. Where are those Olympic medals? Well, actually, if you look over there, you'll see me. And that was done recently when they held the games in London again. But, you know, you really have to realize uh, when he went over in 1948, there hadn't been Olympics prior to that time. Right. Because of Hitler and World War II. Right. And, you know, the idea of them all going over on a ship. And the one thing my father hated about the whole thing uh, was he got seasick. <laughs> so he never became a fisherman, but 
I guess if you want to know, I will tell you how I started fishing. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a, a major influence in my life. And my first, uh, you know, remembrance of fishing actually came, I was uh, from St. Louis, Missouri. I, I must have been, I don't know, three, four years old, five years old, whatever. And uh, the story goes, my grandfather took me to a lake. And, you, of course, uh, you guys are fly fishermen, but they use bobbers, you know, bobbers. And I was so young, they wouldn't let me use a mechanical rod. So give me a cane pole and a bobber. And there, I remember there's a catwalk and everybody's fishing. And I was watching my bobber, you know, on the wrong side of the dock in the, man, in the lily pads. And I caught a bass. And uh, my grandfather uh, paraded me around with the bass, showing me and the bass off. And uh, I think it was the first time I ever got any merit and recognition, you know, in life, how you want that. <laughs> that's why people do what they do. Sure. I'm sure that's why you skied, and I'm sure that's why you're doing your uh, your podcast here and, and the things you love. So that's how it started. And the truth of the matter is my grandfather played a huge role in my life and continued to. He would visit Florida twice a year, come in a month, and he's a reasonably wealthy man. Came in March and, and November. And every day uh, I'd be in grade school, and uh, he'd be sitting there in the car. He'd be waiting for me. He'd pick me up, and we'd fish after school. We'd fish on weekends. And that's pretty much, uh, you know, how my passion for fishing started. I, I was really lucky because about 1957, I guess maybe before that, 55 actually, we moved to a house on a canal. And it's funny, I, I was mentioning to your dad, um, <laughs> this is my beginnings right there. That's me. And that's a eight-foot pram. And it's a, well, that engine's not my, I have the engine that actually lost that engine. Got another one. It was a 1938 Evinrude. Wow. And that was a Biscayne Canal, and I ventured down the canal and eventually out into the bay, and eventually from the bay out into the ocean and eventually to the Bahamas. I want to ask you about that. (laughs) That was going to be my next question. So I was was reading an article. I don't know where, but uh, the article said that you got your first boat when you were 15 or something, and you weren't allowed. You were going out (laughs) of Hallover Inlet, right? And you you saw this great big expansion of water, but you weren't allowed to go out there. And then... What, what did you do? You, well, you, you took a big run somewhere? Well, the truth is this. Um, I had That was my first boat, and I worked my way up to a fiber craft. And my grandfather uh, bought boats that he kept behind our house on the canal. This particular boat was a 21-foot fiber craft with an 80-horsepower Volvo inboard-outboard. As a matter of fact, the manager of the marina, who's two years younger than me, who's not here, Billy, who is mostly just left, I guess he was 13, I was 15. We had another young man with us, Tommy Penland. And honest to God, I did not know the island of Bimini was inhabited. This is true. And we went over to Baker's Hall over, and there was a guy, I remember his name was Stoney. And uh, we asked him how to get to Bimini. And, and the man looked at me and he said, you see the compass? He said, just keep it on E. And my first trip to Bimini was like that. And my parents did not know I was going in the ocean in that 21-footer yet pulled up on the beach in Bimini. For, Alone. For, uh, well, with my two friends. I didn't know there was the inlet, uh, you know, that there was a difference between South and North Bimini. Um, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I heard uh, actually Calypso music, and um, I saw people, and they said, well, you can't dock here. This The waves will beat you to death. It was a, in front of what they called the, the old Pines area there. So we went around, went to Brown's Dock, and that was my beginning of a love affair with the island of Bimini. Unbelievable. Which played a, a big role in my life. And uh, 
before we started the podcast, I had mentioned to your dad that there were a lot of, is serendipitous the right word, um, meetings and just chance meetings with people, which as if you, you know, want to hear all this story, we'll, we'll get into them gradually. Well, when people hear the name Richard Stanzik, they think of swordfish. They think of Bud and Mary's and they think of swordfish. But many people don't realize or didn't know that you had a love affair with bonefish. I did. And big bonefish, right? Back in the day. I've had a love affair with Warsaw groupers. I've had a love affair with sailfish. I've had a love affair with blue marlin. I've had a love affair with schnook. But was bonefish your first? No, no. My first was a little bass I told you about. But um, listen, I have a love affair with fish. And, um, you know, right now, for instance, at this age, you know, I got a lot of guides that uh, kind of beat me up because I go out there three or four afternoons a week. And, you know, I don't know if you're aware of it, but our habitat here has completely been damaged severely. And I don't want to get into this. But the truth of the matter is the bonefish disappeared about, I don't know, 15 years ago or more. And, uh, you know, as so often in my life, I was blessed and able to reinvent myself with swordfish. But what I do now, because I don't swordfish any longer, my son has now taken that over. I go out four afternoons and I stake up what we call dead boat. And I put lines in the water and I take different friends and a lot of people who've never caught fish. And I treat them to the excitement of a screaming drag with a bonefish on the end. And I, and I tell them the same thing. I say, I can't guarantee a fish, but I guarantee a beautiful sunset. So there's a few guides uh, around, not as many as there used to be, who are sophisticated. And, uh, you know, they really beat me up about this stake up bonefishing. I have a line for them. I always tell them the same thing. Anybody can catch a bonefish when you see them. I catch them without seeing them. So <laughs> this, is the, this is the way I deal with, with this. But um, I spent 20-some years of my life with a fly rod in a boat and never put bait in it. Uh, the boat I used was a, a 1955 uh, Nova Scotia before all the fancy boats. There's a picture of it up there. And that's Kenny Newton and myself. Oh, okay. And, I guess I had two claims to fame in uh, the bonefish world. I think it was 1987. I did win the fly bonefish tournament. And, uh, and I also that year uh, caught, I was the guide to the world record bonefish on a fly rod. And that was, that was 14 pounds, six ounces. It was, it's that fish right there. Wow. And here's the deal. I fished with Vic Gaspenny for 51 years, 52 now. And the deal was, um, he would, uh, I would, <laughs> he would pull me around right before the tournament, and I'd pull him around the rest of the year. So <laughs> he ended up with a world record, and I ended up as the guide. You, know, you got time for a little funny story? Yeah, sure. Oh, funny story. Always. So anyway, um, many years ago, I met, and I call her, that's that picture, uh, the first lady in fly fishing. And, and that's Joan Wolf. She is. And uh, unless you've met Joan, I, I don't know, uh, you know how I would describe her other than regal, um, an amazing person, amazing character. I had the pleasure of fishing with her. The first time I went fishing with Joan, um, she came with a well-known newscaster from uh, who was an anchor woman. And the two of them got on the boat. And I this is before I got into the fly fishing heavy. And it was interesting because um, she wanted to catch uh, saltwater fish with cobia, sailfish, kingfish, you know, barracudas, things like that. So we went out. And what was funny, my brother was running the boat. This is my brother, Scott, who's about 13 years younger and has run to catch 22 for 40 years. 
And I remember standing there and I looked at her and my brother's in the bridge and we're going to go catch bait. We're going to chum with some live bait and Joan's going to cast in her and try to catch a big barracuda to start. So I uh, proceeded to tell her how to cast. <laughs> I don't know her. Yeah. She jumped up on the gunnel. Now realize she was a young woman then in her 60s. <laughs> jumped up on the gunnel and I guess threw a cast about 100 feet. And I looked at my brother and he looked at me. And that was my my beginnings with Joan Wolf, And also my beginnings with fly fishing were starting in as well. Well, years later, uh, we were out in the mackerel grounds. As a matter of fact, yeah, there's a picture of Joan with a mackerel somewhere too. So uh, at this point, she had never seen me cast a fly rod. And we're mackerel fishing. And her husband, uh, who was a dear friend as well, uh, catching mackerel. So I decided to pick up the rod, you know, and I'm you know, trying to cast for the mackerels and what have you. And I'm catching them and doing real well. And she looked at me in a very serious voice and said, you know, Richard, if you had some lessons, you could be good at this. <laughs> I didn't want to tell her that I had already won that doggone fly bonefish right, right. tournament and caught, you know, this kind of stuff. But the only reason I won the fly bonefish tournament was because of the guide. He had to put me 30 feet in front of the fish straight downwind. And that was Kenny Knudsen. But I, there was something else about this. I did not want to win with Steve Huff or Al Pulaski or Eddie Whiteman or those guys. Kenny Newton had never caught a bonefish on a fly rod, but he was the hardest working. Prior to this tournament. Never, never, never has still, I don't think, himself. So I um, I took uh, great pride, I guess, and in, in having won that, um, it was luck. But I also knew a lot about fishing and bonefishing, and we worked together on it. You know? Sure. sure. Yeah. But, but you were speaking earlier about your relationship with Steve Huff goes back a long way. <laughs> Well, it's kind of funny. I almost wish I would have brought it. Um, we went to North Miami Junior High School, and there's a little yearbook called The Tiger Tail. So I was a kid with a boat, and Steve and I were in the same class, and we walked from North Miami Junior High School about two and a half miles, and we started fishing together. I may very well have been the first person to ever take him out in a boat. And how many years ago is this now? Well, let's see. I'm 76, 75. Six. This would have been um, a little over sixty years ago. Yeah, twelve years old, thirteen years old. Yeah. So, I remember going out uh, the canal, which is Biscayne Canal. If you turn to the right, there was a little area, and there was some tarpon that used to hang out in there. Took me a long time to catch one of those. I actually had to jump in the water with the first tarpon I ever caught at that age and swim under a dock because I was using a bait reel with a Zara spook. Oh, that's funny. I don't know if you know what this is. Yeah, sure. sure. But anyway, that's uh, and then I never saw Steve again. Until I got to the Keys, and then I saw his name and realized, uh, you know, that he was uh, this really he was, yeah. well done, famous, you know, fisherman. But he's also, uh, like Joan Wolf, a real gentleman. And um, I, I fished four times in that tournament. Um, I came in second uh, three, and then I won. I think the best thing about it was I, f I felt that beating him, you know, to beat him was really saying something. It, well, it for sure. Yeah, yes. What yeah. kind of a uh, what kind of a kid was he back then? Quiet. Do you remember? Very quiet, very shy. You know, just a, a more of a straightforward kid. I was the opposite. I was a kid that went to Bimini when he was fifteen in a twenty-one foot boat. So, th so there's another story that I heard. Uh, I heard you went out offshore fishing before. Uh, the high school prom or the morning of the high school prom and you hooked into what happened? Well, I, I'm going to show you this. This, this you got to see this. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this was my first wife and she was beautiful. She was, uh, became a fashion model. Um, this is at Pier 5. This is not the fish. This is me when I was young. Um, I had actually, at that time, I, I think it was in that, it was in that same boat. 
um, yeah, it was a, it, it was a high school prom and, you know, we'd rent, we'd rented a limo. I was parking cars at Defount Blue and had some connections and we were going to go to the prom, you know, how and make a big deal and then go to the Fountain Blue afterwards. And I said to her, listen, I'm going to go out fishing and I'm going to fish from daybreak till, till noon. No problem. You know, I'll be in, in time. So trust, trust me. <laughs> yeah, trust me. So we're off the sea buoy and got my cut and, uh, you know, using a, six oh reel in those days, a linen line and I had never caught a big blue marlin and uh, a big blue marlin came up. The fish uh we hooked them, uh we didn't <laughs> we fought at eight hours, something like that. We were off Pompano. I can't even remember the name of the inlet, uh, but uh, we had run out of I had put peanut butter on my face. I was sunburned, beat to death. Uh, we came in the inlet, ran out of gas, drifted into a seawall. People came down, thought we were well, they would have thought we were from Cuba, but they weren't coming over yet, and they didn't know what we were. And, and uh, I called my dad, and contacted the, uh, of course, my girlfriend, and spoiled the whole thing. And I actually wrote a pretty good story. I've never written anything in my life except that story. I wrote that story, and uh, in the end, I said I, uh, I lost a girl, but I still have the memory of the fish. Sure. And how big was that fish? I would, you know, I've, I, I became obsessed with blue marlins, and uh, after that, oh my God, well. Or before it took me a while to, to catch my first big one, but um, yeah, um, that fish was probably in the 500 pound range. So, um, right offshore of Miami, yeah, they, they wow. used to live there back then, uh, they still do occasionally, yeah. And um, I spent uh, I don't know, eight or ten years traveling. You know, that boat you see, uh, in up above that yellow boat is my, my boat, my brother, and we, uh, for years and years and years, we traveled with the kids and we had a boat before that same, you know, same thing. And so I spent my, a lot of time in the Bahamas, um, and traveling down Turks and Caicos and, uh, fishing for blue marlin. So how did the sword fishing come about? I mean, you, you, you were a huge pioneer in innovating daytime sword fishing. I mean, was it primarily nighttime sword fishing before that? Yeah, we can go to that part of the story. Um, let's, let's wait for a second. You want to? Yeah. yeah. Let, let's go. Yeah. Let's talk about Pier Five because that was in the yeah. early years when you yeah, first started that, really uh, getting connected with yeah. the big boats in the offshore world, and yeah. and the players up at Pier Five were very very famous offshore they captains. Were. They were actually uh, interestingly enough, um, I graduated University of Miami as my son Nick did with an accounting degree. I had uh, you know I had a twenty one fiber craft that my grandfather had, and then I got a twenty three foot formula. And I got a 29-foot carry. Um, it's a long story how all those boats came about. The carry was fast. It had two 440 Chryslers in it, 330 horsepower. I had a custom-built tower, which was today what you call an express boat. So it wasn't unusual for me to run back and forth to Bimini every weekend. And that's when I began to understand Blue Marlin and catch Blue Marlin. So um, some somehow in this whole configuration... Uh, and this is a strange story. My grandfather insisted, remember I go back to the grandfather who provided me with boats and provided me with money for my college education. He insisted I go to college. So I did, and I got this accounting degree, and I practiced. I was with a public accounting firm, uh, 24 guys, you know. We audited banks, and one of the banks we were audited was over there on Jefferson National Bank, right near the charter boat docks up in, uh, what do you call it, Sunny Isles. So I would, uh, I hated it. I didn't like accounting. And I 
I had an opportunity, and I did. I, I had an opportunity to, to get a hold of a bar and restaurant. And I quit my accounting job, broke my mother's heart when I called her and told her I was quitting. And actually, the partners loved me, too. They hated it. So I went into the restaurant bar business. I was 22 when I got my first liquor license. And um, I had a friend named Bob Lewis, who I knew through bowling, because my parents were in the bowling alley business. Now, Bob Lewis would be in the Hall of Fame, and he's the guy who did the kites. Sure. And he fished at Pier 5. He was a motorcycle cop. And he fished at Pier 5 when all the great ones were there, Buddy Carey, guys like that. And, you know, uh, Vince Spaulding and uh, all the Spaulding brothers and sons. So for me, the idea of ever getting to Pier 5, uh, you know, it was just some kind of a dream. I remember being in Bimini um, with my friend Charlie Cluck and walking down to Bimini <laughs> Game Club Dock and seeing Rivovich's and Merritt's. And I don't know if these things mean anything, but these were high-end boats sure. that wealthy people had in those days before they were traveling to the Virgin Islands and God, now they go all over the world. And uh, Charlie looked at me and said, Richard, the closest you'll ever come to heaven is in the top of one of those towers. So this was me. This was my passion, what <laughs> I wanted. Anyway, Bob Lewis, uh, my father knew him through the bowling because Bob bowled in a league. My dad was in the bowling business. And I decided um, that I wanted to buy a charter boat. I'm going to back this up because <laughs> this is funny. The first big blue marlin, and I don't, I think I got a picture of that here that I ever caught. Um, oh, there it is. Okay. I'm going to back this up. Yeah, sure. Well, that's my friend Charlie. That's the dock in Bimini. And that's me. Okay. Wow. And that's 1967. So what ended up happening was funny. Um, I ended up in Bimini all the time, and I had that boat, and there was a woman who was an exotic dancer that would come from Nassau. And she was a fire swallower and quite an entertainer. And she had a, a girlfriend named Nurse Johnson, who was the nurse that was on Bimini. So she would come there. So um, I used to drink in all the local places like the Calypso Club, Brown's Bar, and the Big Game Club. And it was paradise for me as a young man. And uh, I, I knew this woman. So I, they talked me into fishing in a tournament with them. Uh, it was a native tournament. Anyway, the long and short is uh, we hooked a blue marlin. We were actually you know, like this one, trolling a big bonefish. We fought it for six or seven hours. I had a Bahamian mate named Percy Dutton. God rest his soul. He died in Nassau. Um, and we had several shots with the flying gaff, missed him, and lost the fish. Well, this plays into how I got here. And <laughs> the way I got here... In those days, I drank a lot, and I was so upset. I drank so much that I passed out, and I was laying on one of those docks. And about one in the morning, a fellow by the name of Harold Adler, this goes into the chance meeting, came and shook me and said, are you all right? I had no shirt on in those days. I could go with no shirt. I kind of woke up um, terribly uh, hungover and half, you know, still inebriated. And he invited me down on a boat. It was the Kalex, which in those days was not that Kalex, which was Alex Adler. It was an old enterprise that he'd brought down from New York. So anyway, um, that was how I met Harold Adler. And about a year later, he had contracted with Jimmy Albright, who was a fishing captain guide here, one of the most famous names in sport fishing, who fished out of the Keys here, out of this marina, to run his offshore boat, which was the old Calex. I had never fished for sailfish uh, down here. 
Harold called me and said, my boat blew a riser. Could you bring your boat down? This was a 29-footer with the inboards in the tower. I said, sure, I'll bring that down and we'll fish. Uh, Charlie helped me bring the boat down. I remember there was no GPS. We actually stopped and pulled in near the shore in Tavernier, and I had him wade in to see where we were. And we came to Bud Mary's. That was my first experience in 1970, I think it was. So Jimmy ran the boat. I made it. It was the first time I ever saw double lines put in mono. It was the first time I ever saw mono leaders for sailfish. It was the first it was the first time for a lot of things, little tiny gold fin or reels. And uh, we won the tournament, 1970. Jimmy Albright, Harold Adler is the angler. Alex was about 12. So this is how I first came to Bud Mary's, which was 1970. And, of course, through a series of lucky breaks, I managed to uh, – get money together to buy the place in 1978. The other thing um, I'm going to tell you, and this is important to me while we're telling all this, this boat right here, now this is this backs up a little bit. The Primo Donna. Yeah. Well, the boat used to be called the Rerun, and Captain Bob Lewis ran that for James Knight from the Miami Herald, Knight Ritter. So I'm uh, through this stage with the with the carry boat and fishing here and back in Miami and out of accounting and still have the bar business and a restaurant and I'm doing tax returns at night. And Bob Lewis, I go down to Pier 5 I, with Charlie Cluck and I meet Buddy Carey and I'm standing there in awe. These guys, geez, these guys are legends. And Bob Lewis is the reason I went down there. He said, you know, uh, Mr. Knight's going to sell his boat and it would make an ideal charter boat. So I went down there and I, I saw the boat and Mr. Knight wanted to meet me. I had no idea who James Knight was. And he wants me to come to the Herald building. I go down there, and Captain Lewis Bob takes me down, and um, I wait for this guy, and he comes in in khaki clothes, and kind of like this place. He's got pictures of Chubb Key and Marlin, and he was one of the founders of the Crown Colony. And just like I'm talking now, I sit down, I'm don't, and, and I want to buy this boat. I don't even have half the money to buy the boat. And the half I got, I got to borrow from Charlie's mother. Anyway, the long and short is he, I tell my stories. He knows who I am and, uh, you know, growing up on a canal and Bimini and whole nine yards. And I walk out really dejected. A day later, I got a call from his secretary. I never saw the man again. Mr. Knight wants you to have the boat. He's going to put it in Tommy's boatyard. Captain Lewis is going to put it in first, in first you know, rate shape for you. And I get a chill when I tell the story because there's a lot of these little moments in my life. So that was my charter boat. I had it for about six or seven years. Um, it was funny. Um, I docked right next to Buddy Carey, and I became very close friends with his son, Mike, who's passed away. And Mike Carey and a guy named Billy Harrison are going to play a big role in this, which I hope I'm not taking up too much time. No, also, not at all. But I'm gonna, I'll, I, I want to get to the whole thing. So I, I think some of the best days of my life uh, were running that boat. I had a bar business. It was docked across the street from a fashion college, and there was a bar at the end of the dock. And it was perfect. What, what could, how much better could <laughs> it get? You know. So, as a matter of fact, that young lady right there went to that fashion college. Anyway, um, as it would have, as things would have it, um, we'll get to this now. Um, in 1977, or this might have been 76, Mike Carey and Billy Harrison, along with two guys that owned. Uh, Fluker Taxidermy at the time, Jerry and Jesse Webb came up with this idea that we're going to try to catch a swordfish off Miami. Now, there's a reason that happened. And the reason was Billy spoke Spanish. 
And we used to buy our bait down in the Miami River at a bait house. And suddenly they started noticing these swordfish bills in the corner. So one day, um, Billy and Mike, well, Mike, the captain of the other sea boots, his father in a big sea boots, comes and tells me this story. And they didn't have any tackle. They had some, but I had a I had big tackle because I fished the Bahamas. So I lent them a pair of my 80s. I probably could have been on the boat this night, by the way, but I stopped to have a drink in a bar, not with that girl, with another. So I missed the boat, and about 3 in the morning, I get a call from Mike, come down to the dock, I come down to the dock, and there's two 300-pound swordfish laying there. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, that opened up the floodgates to swordfishing. Right. Did they have an idea about how to catch a swordfish, or were they kind of guessing? or were there... They did. And where'd they get that information from? Cubans. From? Okay. In 1960, all the Cubans that fished commercial fishermen that left Cuba migrated here, and they all wound up the fishermen around the Miami River, which was the hub of commercial and what have you. It's not that way any longer. You know, where those things are now, if you went up there, you'll see high rises and stuff. Right. But again, this is way back then. So that's where they got the idea. And uh, in those days, they went out and they used these silooms, which are little uh, you know, chemical sticks that you burn. So um, You talk about the floodgates. Well, the floodgates were this. Um, I, <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. I, uh, you know, I'd been running a charter boat, and I, this was a funny story. Uh, Buddy Carey uh, was my neighbor right next to me, the boat next to me. And he took a liking to me. He always used to give me uh, a lot of parties to take fishing, his overflow. And I could never really figure that out because, you know, he's a legend, and I'm just starting out. And I'm thinking the guy really likes me this much, and I think he did. But one day, Kenny Spaulding, who works here, he's 84, by the way, comes up and says, you know why he gave you those trips? I said, no. He says, because you're not going to catch anything. You'll get them all back. <laughs> I don't know if that makes it. If you're in a yeah. charter business, you get this. <laughs> but what I did, I worked at the Fountain Blue growing up when I was 16. And I, when you work parking cars at the Fountain Blue, that's a world unto itself. I always said I learned, you know, I got my formal education at the University of Miami. My real life, my real education came there. Your street the street. education. It, street did. it did. We won't get into that. Um, but anyway, I, as a result of knowing this, I was able to uh, really produce a tremendous amount of business through hotels for Pier 5 and helped a lot, of, a lot of people out. And in turn, these people helped me. They showed me where all the wrecks were, where, you know, because I don't know if you know about fishing wrecks. These are called fads. Yep. Fish aggregate devices. And Kenny Spaulding, who's, again, with me now and still works here, he's 84, uh, and his brother. But his father, Vince, uh, was the one, along with uh, Alf Luger, his father, not the kid. They began to put these fads out there off Miami. And at one time, I had 40 of them committed to memory. Now, in those days, we didn't have the GPS. GPS can make a fisherman on anybody overnight. In those days, you had ranges and depths, and you lined things up, and that's how you got there. So I... Um, one of my other claims to fame, they pretty much, uh, by 1970-something, wiped out the Warsaw grouper population. And I'm coming home one day, and I I got my old paper machine on, and I found a wreck in 468 feet of water way down off the buoy off of Elliott's Key. And it killed the guys of Pier 5 because I could catch uh, Warsaws at will. They live a long time, and they're big. So I caught 130 Warsaw groupers when nobody else could catch them. Until finally, uh, my friends went out there with an airplane and a small boat and, and caught me on the spot and wiped it out. But it was my other, one of my, you know, I got these little claims to fame. Did that put you on the map? It did in, in, in that little microcosm of right. people. Um, 
but it, I, I can't tell you what it was like, uh, you know, to drop a, you know, a whole Barracuda down or a whole Elmaco jock Jack and put a guy in a chair with a wire line and pull away and watch, watch this 300 pound Warsaw. And I have, uh, you know, I have a lot of, I don't think I put the pictures of the Warsaws in there, but anyway, that, that was, you know, when I told you that I, and, and that I have reinvented myself. And when you asked me what fish all through my life, you know, I've been able to do that. So, you know, uh, Warsaw groupers, you know, what ended up happening, this is me. This is the tournament, the first annual tournament. I caught those two fish. I actually caught three. And um, I thought I died and gone to heaven. I'm getting paid a lot of money to go out there and drift around at night. Don't tell anybody this because I'm a boat captain. We could actually drink while we were drifting around and catch these big fish. Um, I don't know how this, but anyway, the long and short, what ended up happening then, um, uh, somebody dangled a carrot in front of me, uh, money, and I, I, I left, and I moved to Alaska. And Did really? It. Yeah. To do what? Go into mining business. You left fishing to go mining. Yeah. And what was that like? <laughs> it was like that hell. was a hell of a transition. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna tell you. I uh, it, part of it was trying to get my first wife back. Her br uh, brother-in-law and other people. Uh, needed money. I had some money that I, by then. We went up there and, uh, you know, uh, we, I invested. I actually lived on the mine site. Uh, you know, we'd fly from Anchorage and had an apartment and went back and forth. And um, uh, <laughs> what ended up happening is I didn't get the wife back. And we sold out and I did get some money and I came back. How long did that transition Not last? long. Uh, pretty, long. It was, it was up pretty... there for six months. They had terrible rules. There was a, I lived in a. No drinking. <laughs> well, a, I was living yeah. in a plywood shack with a with visqueen top and I'm afraid of guns and I don't like bears. And, and I, and I had a dog that was with us. Uh, they got hit with a porcupine. They had to put it to sleep, a big German shepherd. And there were no women and there was no drinking. And I, I didn't make it. Yeah, I feel, uh, yeah. I'm surprised you lasted that long. I did. <laughs> So anyway, I had to come back, and I did. And uh, one thing led to, uh, one thing led to the next. Um, yeah. So now you're into sword fishing and, and doing it su successfully. Well, I I did the nighttime sword fishing. Right. Then I had this hiatus. And then this is ni 1978. I come here and I get this again, amazing chance to buy this, which all goes back to remember when I told you I fished here in a sailfish tournament. Yes. I met the owner of this place. Right. This is another funny story. Name was Jack Kurtz. Very shifty character. Loved to fish. Uh, again, I didn't have any enough money. So I come down here and I and I'm looking at this place and uh, and I thought, man, what it would it be like to own this? So I asked Jack about it, and Jack said, Oh my God, Richard, I just sold it. So I go back to Miami, I and I get a phone call from Jack. Uh, this is about a month, two months later, and he says to me, um, you know what? The guy can't uh, has put money in escrow, or I think it was then. Can't come up with the money. I'm going to reduce it if you still want it. Give me a down payment. I'll hold the paper and I'll sell you Bud and Mary's. And I, and that's how it happened. Wow. And and I ended up with Bud and Mary's. I was in over my head too. Trust me when I, I was tell just going to ask. Yeah. Now now yeah. what? Be careful well, what you wish for. You may get it. Yeah, and uh, were you overwhelmed at that time? Uh, once you got it, no, because I was still drinking. So <laughs> you didn't know what was happening. Yeah. <laughs> it was all good. 
<laughs> you were rolling. No, I hate. I hate. Yeah, I, I don't want. I do not. You know, I don't. Yeah, we're gonna get to that part of the story. So anyway, yes, I buy Bud Mary's, um, and by then, remember um, the sword fishing. What ended up happening with the sword fishing? The longliners got wind of it, and they moved into the Straits of Florida, and they Decimated, devastated, yeah. destroyed the sword fishing. I came down here, and all of a sudden, I got in a skiff. I remember doing that. Um, I was with a guy named John Kip. We were in a Mako, and another guy. Who was that? Oh, Sonny. They're there. And we went out to the swash. You're familiar with that? Yeah. And I had my first encounter with a bonefish. And I remember uh, they were pushing, <laughs> we were trying to pull. The water got too shallow. They were out, they got out of the boat. I'm using bait then. And they're pushing it through the mud. And the bonefish went in the ditch and came up on the flat over there. And I jumped off the boat and swam across and waded up. And I actually caught this bonefish. And I became, I became obsessed with bonefish, as I were with Warsaw groupers and all these other fish. But also, too, life. now you're, it might be the hunting aspect that you were enthralled with you see the fish absolutely. and now you can absolutely yeah. chase them yeah so um i became obsessed with bonefish now there were fish parallel lives you know i was that i'll get to but yeah i had i don't know how many years 20 something years of bone fishing and uh what happened is uh after you know pulling around on bait uh, I, I discovered you could catch them with a fly rod so my friend vic gaspenny and there's a picture up there he and i that one's in here um this was uh, the, uh, the thing that I get, this, this right here. So anyway, um, I was always uh, innovative, um, always figuring things out, which you'll hear about when you get into the sword fishing. And one of the things we did, remember I told you, uh, did I tell you that I wasn't a, I didn't have any fly casting lessons and yep. I had to be 30 feet in front of the fish. I had one other secret weapon. This was before they came out with all the fancy flies People hadn't really gotten into it. So I knew uh, a woman named Millie who made Millie Bucktails. Sure. Knew her well because I bought all the bucktails and her husband. So Vic and I sat down, and I didn't tie flies, but he could. And we designed a fly. It was brown, had a bucktail-type tail, and it had a little wedge head. And it was a fly that wouldn't go to the bottom. It would stay suspended, so to speak. It was so deadly that it, you, when it hit, they would hit it. They would run to it. It was—I don't know if the sound, but also as you stripped it, it had that little. And they dip. So I was smart enough to figure out you needed to fly on hard bottom. You needed to fly in the middle, and you know these nine, nine mile fish, and these giant fish, they wanted that fly, and you get it near them, and they're going to eat it. So the fly helped. I had to fly. I knew how to tie the knots, and uh, I told you the story. Uh, you know we. Uh, we decided to, end, uh, to enter the enter, <laughs> the fly bowfish tournament. In those days, there were 25 guys, man, and they knew what they were doing, and they were good guys. And you had to stand up the whole time. I will tell you that um, the year I won, I uh, had a hangover one day and didn't fish one day. Really? Yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. Yeah, I didn't get sober till I'll get into that, 1990. So, um, yeah, it was a real long shot that Richard would win. And but you did. I did. And I can tell you, uh, the one fish I always remember, Kenny was there. It was dead low tide. It was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. There was no way in the world to catch a fish. And there was a spot right behind the marina called the Pilings. And I had the, my magic fly, and it was blowing. And there were big, giant mud and fish about three or four feet deep. And I managed to get the fly in with them. 
And I stripped it, and I heard the knot hit, the knot hit the last guide. And I did this and hooked that fish, and he ran out in the pilings where all the lobsters were, traps and stuff. And I remember catching that thing, and uh, I got, you know, I, my name's in there. So that was my uh, my fly tournament stuff. And it, it is one of the most important things in my life. I'll never forget it, the thrill of it. Uh, but something happened, uh, you know. I again, I, I told your dad just before we started taping. I I really didn't belong on the bow of the boat. I mean, I belonged there catching fish, but I belonged pulling the boat or running the boat and catching fish for people. You had more joy in in, in seeing an angler be successful. Absolutely, which is you know um, when you saw me in a charter business, you know um, that's what I was doing. Right, and you know I've been doing that all my life. Uh, I did, think did know, tarpon ever come into play? I, because for so many people, it was it was the tarpon. I was a bonefish. But you were a bone a bone fisherman, and yeah. in the antithesis of a bonefish is what was happening out there in seventeen hundred feet of water. <laughs> yeah, but you know the bonefishing. Also, I, I, I had a, a love affair with Andros Island. I had a place over there for twenty five years, and at that time, I used to fly back and forth. So I saw bonefishing in Andros when I was the only guy there. Um, I fished all over the Bahamas, so I was obsessed with bone fishing. I mean, obsessed. Um, and I, I knew. I mean, I've caught them in muds. I've caught them tailing. I caught them cruising. I've caught them <laughs> just about. As a matter of fact, if you look up there, you see that picture of me. There's a that world record bonefish, and right above it is me and my guide James. Yeah, he lived to be 100 also, and I can remember getting in the boat with James in uh, Andros, and uh, that was an aluminum boat. We would start at daybreak, and in those days, they used a push pole with a little prong on one end and a point on the other. And as we pulled all our way back, it's 30 miles through that bite, James would see uh, a conch. He'd say, boss, can I put the conch in the boat? Yes, James. Driftwood. Boss, can I have it? Yes. Sponges. Yes. Funniest story ever. We're pulling along. I shouldn't tell this one, maybe. Um, because I wouldn't do this and I shouldn't have done it, but, uh, he saw a turtle and of course I had the camp over there and then I was practically part of their family. And I, so anyway, we see this turtle and James says, boss, can I get that turtle? James is in his seventies and the turtle, when you get near him, is going to take off. I never in my life ever thought uh, that he would get this turtle. I said, yeah, go ahead, get the turtle, James. Well, what I didn't know, he started the darn boat up, just drove around until the turtle popped up, picked it up, and put it in the boat. <laughs> and I had I had piles of stuff with the turtle upside down. I'm looking at his eyes, and he's snapping at my heels, and I'm going, oh, my God, what have I done? I want to tell you another story, and this is a true story. I had bought a boat for Nick, and this is when the bonefish left. Nick's your son. My son. And I had, was coming back from out in the Gulf out here, and I'm in this catamaran, which is before, this is an old catamaran world cat with a tower we're coming through the twin key markers and i see uh, because i don't know if you understand this but years ago as a cold fronts approach when the mackerel time comes the bonefish move and they move from nine mile and all these areas and they move in a bunch and they go out to the ocean they also do it to spawn and i saw something that i, I don't know if anybody would ever believe me but i saw it i saw this massive bonefish at first i thought it was mullet it was bonefish and I watched dolphin porpoises circle them. And the same thought come to my mind. How can a porpoise catch a bonefish? Well, I watched how. They just drove them till they couldn't swim and they ate them at will. 
And I think that, in addition to obviously the destruction of the habitat, is one of the things that contributed to the, the decline disappearing out of Alamrata. So I wasn't going to get into that, but I did witness it. Jeez, I'm talking a lot you, here. You know, no, you're, it's good. That's what no, we want you to do. Are you all right do. with all this? No, uh, keep this going. Awesome. We love it. All right. So anyway, I, I wanted to get Andros and the Bahamas in and the bonefish again because it's not like I just fished right. you know, that one tournament. No, um, it's... Uh, what what I, what I, the reason I was able to win the tournament was because my understanding and of bonefish, knowing where they're at, body language, you know, there's tricks. And I could do all that. I just couldn't cast a fly rod. But, you know, uh, I was, with Kenny's help, we, we did that. So but, you're buying a boat for your son now. Bonefish well, had gone away. You're coming in well, off the golf. No, that's I did buy a boat for my son when he turned 15. I bought quite a few boats, but but you know Nick and Ricky. That's kind of we get to that part. But I think you're wanting to get to the swordfish. So there we go. Yeah, let's get to it. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, I showed you you know where I fished in the first tournament, 1977, and I had a again I have obsessions with all these fish, and of course sword fishing was there. I came down here 1978. I got, you know, into uh, several things. One was bone fishing. The other was fishing in Mexico for sailfish and going to the Bahamas and fishing for blue marlin. So all this was going on. But as I, I mentioned, uh, the longliners had moved into the Straits of Florida and wiped out the swordfish. So around the year 2000, um, I think it was 9-11. You all remember that. Um, this place was silent and nothing was going on. Um, there was a guy uh, by the name of Dr. Ruben Heinz, and I've got a letter from him in there. Oh, it's in my other book. And actually, Dr. Heinz had really discovered uh, swordfish off Venezuela, okay, and it caught them in the daytime. We did not discover daytime sword fishing. We imported it. Oh, from Venezuela. From, right. But now, understand, in Venezuela, it's 800 feet deep and there's no current. Out here, it's much different. 1,700 feet deep and a three-knot current, which right. I'll get into a little of that as well. So anyway, 9-11 uh, comes along. We got nothing to do. They had finally passed legislation to keep the swordfish out of the straits, the longliners. So my brother, myself, Vic Gaspenny, decide, let's go out and see if we can catch a swordfish at night because maybe they're coming back. So I go out there at night. And for a couple of years, uh, we're I, again, I, when I say I get obsessed with something, I get obsessed. I'm out there three nights a week. And we're the first guys to, you know, start using live bait for them. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're catching them in good numbers, but we're not catching big ones. We're catching little juvenile fish. So after a couple of years of that, um, it finally comes to me that if these fish are here during the daytime or nighttime, they got to be here during the day. But how are we going to catch these things? They're. 1,500 feet down. So um, what happened uh, was we decided to go out. I have There's a picture of a guy named Max Mayfield over there. He was a director of the National Hurricane Center. He's holding that big permit with me. Well, Max got me maps, which you know are like bathymetric charts. So I looked at it, and uh, knowing what I do know about fish, uh, you know, a lot of fish, uh, you know, have sensors, and they travel on sometimes fault lines or breaks, if you will, like groupers, for instance, travel off Miami at 240 feet. Uh, so there's a fault line that runs all the way down in about 14, 1,500 feet deep. And right out front of Alamrod, it's kind of a slope, but down there it's a, a wall. 
What is a fault line before we go? That's a crack in the earth. Okay, that's what I thought. Actual crack. So there, this is a minor one out here. So anyway, um, we decide <laughs> what happened is uh, people around me, employees, everybody else, uh, they say, you know, Richard, you stand up all night. You're not pleasant to be around. So that contributed to it too. So we decide we're going to go try to catch a swordfish in the daytime. So we go out there. We take monofilament line, a big 10-0 reel, loaded up with 80. I decide, listen, uh, we're going to use a concrete block to get this thing to go down because of the current. I said, listen, let me put a snaring device on there. So I used some snag hooks in case he got on there. We At least we know they were there. We go out the first time. We drop the thing in the water. It goes down. We're sitting there for hours, and all of a sudden it's heavy. We can't reel it up. So we hand-lined the damn thing up. They wanted to just cut the line and go. And when we got it to the surface, there was a 60-pound uh, swordfish wrapped up. You hand you, you yeah, hand line yeah, we hand line yeah, yeah because you got monofilament line wow. a concrete cinder block and a swordfish hanging on there which is <laughs> you know because we're trying to figure this out sure, we, we yeah. don't know what to do that's the ultimate yo-yo catch yes <laughs> but now this um, what ends up happening I spent 13 14 years down in Mexico fly fishing for sailfish so when I was down there I also figured out a lot about strip baits which I learned from Buddy Carey on Pier Five because that's what they used to drag for sailfish there. And I knew how to cut a strip out of a bonita or what have you. So um, the long and short is, the first thing we figured out was they had come out with Power Pro, or if if you will, the high-tech, uh, you know, lines, braided line. Well, there's an exponential relationship. You know, when the current, when you drop line out there in the Gulf Stream, it's running three knots at this time. And when you drop mono, it's five times the size. There's too much drag. 80-pound mono is five times the size of 80-pound Power Pro or, or you know, fuel braided line. So the braid cuts right through the water. Exactly. It right. stems it because, you know, again, that exponential relationship causes it. So we couldn't hold bottom with the mono. So we got the braided line involved. Guys started making lights that would tolerate the 1,500-foot depth. Um, so I came up with I, – I did not want and I would not and never have caught up a swordfish – on an electric reel. To this and, day. To this day. Okay, and I won't. Uh, and my son will, and he does. But anyway, I, if I'm going to do it, I wanted to do it as a sport fishing, and I did. I used fighting chairs. So I had to figure out a way to deploy the bait. So what I did is I took, and I had guys that worked for me. This used to be a big storage barn, and then I was storage. And I had them build a, a, a mold, and I made my own weight out of concrete with flat surfaces, so when you dropped it down, you couldn't pull it up, and I took a tippet like I used, like you use in tarpon fishing, okay? And I took that tippet, and I'd use 12 to 15 to 20, depending on the current and the wind, and I would splice it into a long leader, and I would hang uh, the weight on there. So we'd throw the weight in, pull away, drop it down, angle away. Now, when the fish bit, we, you, know, you see this, you pull away, and you pop the weight off, and now it's just you and the fish. This sounds easy, but it wasn't easy. It took a lot of innovation, and it came from my days at Pier 5, from my fly fishing, from Mexico. From Venezuela. You took all your knowledge and applied exactly. it to this one. Not, yes. And so um, we were starting to fish for swordfish in the daytime. Um, I have a, a book here, like this book. And this book is— Look at all those big I, fish. Well, I have yeah, hundreds— Okay, just that's all swordfish. Okay, I didn't want anybody to know this. <laughs> I really didn't. 
Um, and I didn't let them know. Um, so I, for two years, I went out there obsessed and I probably caught 200 swordfish before people knew about it. Well, what would you do to the swordfish? How would they not know when you came in at three and you had a big old fish in the back of your That's boat? That's an interesting story. We released some and we killed them. They were big. What was interesting, we found out the swordfish during the daytime were three times the size of the ones at night. Why was that? that? Was that? They yeah. live on the bottom, the spawning fish. What we also figured out is that squid spawn in 1,500 feet of water. But those spawning fish don't come up in the water column at night? Some do, but very few. Okay. So what I did, I had my brother involved. I had a license, which we still have. I had mates on the boat, and it became pretty costly running that big boat out there fishing for swordfish three days a week. I bought a second boat called the B&M, which is still here, that I ran myself. And when I tell you I was obsessed, I was obsessed. And um, let me tell you a few little things about sword fishing. Number one, if you go back before the nighttime discovery, there had only been 100 swordfish caught on rod and reel by anglers, period. Okay. The guy who really uh, popularized swordfish was a guy named Zhang Gray. Mm -hmm. If you know a little bit about him, 1929, he actually bought a schooner and sailed out of the West Coast and went to New Zealand to catch the first 1,000-pound marlin. Right. It took he, him, he wrote a book, uh, Swordfish and Tuna, yeah. when he was over in South Carolina or Southern California out right. at Catalina Island. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I read that book. It's fascinating. Well, he was a, as many people are, he's. But there's spirit a lot of them too, right? Well, they harpoon swordfish for years. That's yeah. commercially what they did. But it took him four years to catch four sword. It took him a year to catch four one time. He actually uh, worked out and lifted weights and everything. A woman caught a 400-pounder in his club. He quit the club because of it. He said it couldn't be done. But anyway, this is Zang Gray, and this right. is where this comes from. The first, there were there were no images because when Zang Gray was fishing for him, there were so few anglers that had caught him, and nobody had a camera. Swordfish are not like marlin. When a swordfish jumps, the line could be here. He's over there somewhere, and, and he only jumps sometimes once. They're not like tail-walking sailfish and what have you. One of the things, uh, let me see here. Uh, that oh gosh, that I uh, that I was able to do, and I have lots of them. Uh, was it was capture uh, images of swordfish jumping, jumping during the daytime? Wow. wow! Nobody'd ever seen this. Okay. Oh my gosh! So I was uh, I I honestly believed that my my obsession with bonefish was taken away again because of deterioration of the habitat, overfishing. And other things, okay. So somehow or another at this age, what I was there, 19, 2003 to whenever I was able to reinvent myself in a swordfish world. What ended up happening? I had a friend named Andy Hahn. I loved Andy dearly. And uh, Andy, I caught him his first uh, blue marlin, his first bonefish and tarpon. And he developed ALS. And at that time, he was walking on a, a walker still writing, and I, they got a hold of me from Sport Fishing Magazine, and Andy was writing for him, and I said, I'll do, do, I'll do this. He let Andy come down and, and catch a swordfish, and I'll go public. So I did. So right here, it says Swordfish Shocker. So that was the first article. That was when it started, and Andy caught his swordfish. I have a picture of him with it. He's long since passed. Was that hard for you to keep that secret? Yeah, yeah, it was. Because uh, now all of a sudden you're, yeah. you're whacking big ones in the yeah, middle of the was. day. What I was doing is uh, bringing them in and swapping letting, boats, letting my brother uh, take them down and sell them in Key West 
with our commercial license. So right. they didn't know where they were coming from. Right. So they probably thought you were a terrible fishing coming or fisherman coming back at the end of the day with with no fish. Yeah. Meanwhile, well, you were whacking they, monsters. They, they, they were, they, the word was getting out. The word was getting out. But I even even if the Alex Adler was my he, he got me. He he had a guy down there with a big boat and the, the the radar and all, and they zeroed in. I mean, they were going to get me one way or the other, but I kept it secret for a long time. I had a lot of fun with this. So tell me when you get out there, where do you go? How do you how do you do what you do? I mean, for swordfish? Yeah, I mean, is there certain certain depths that you target? Well, you drift to the north with the current. Yeah, well, all right. Let me tell you. You remember I told you how we caught the first one, and then we had a general idea where to go because we had fished at night, and also we we had this map that showed this interesting break, and sure enough, that's where all the bait is. So what you do is you the current. Now I'm gonna tell you something else that's interesting. When I started fishing for swordfish, it took twelve to fourteen pounds, sometimes more, to hold the bottom. To get the bait down. Yes, to hold the bottom because you don't break it off. It today. Because of global warming, I don't care what anybody tells you, you can hold bottom out toward four or five pounds a lot of days. The current of the Gulf Stream has slowed down in the last 20 years since I started, you know, or 15 years with this swordfish thing. So anyway, you, you, you pull, I used to, Nicholas does, Nicholas is a lot better at it than I was, by the way. I pull in, I pull down, I go, I go into the current, I, I let it out slow and at an angle and the boat gets away and you kind of back up to it. And... Hang on a second. In 19, whatever this was, you're involved with the IGFA, right? I am. This was a, a real privilege for me, too. Um, this, yeah. In ninth, this year here, th- I was one of the few people that they actually came down. Uh, there's a really interesting man I love named Adrian Gray. Yeah, absolutely. And a, I don't remember the other. Don't repeat this. I don't remember the other guy's names. But uh, the IGFA actually uh, profiled you. Did the whole, well, they put the whole thing, how to do it. Right. Everything was in that article. So, you know, everything from bait rigging to lines to, you know, what went on. But I, I considered that a, a real honor to be in that particular book. For sure. You know, for that kind of thing. So anyway, I had my uh, 15 years of uh, sword fishing. This is the biggest one I ever caught. How big was that? Well, we brought it in. We tried to weigh it. We have a telephone pole with a scale. We got it up there. And broke. the pole broke. And so we had to put it in a truck and drive it to the way station. My son is an interesting character. He is like my dad, incapable of exaggerating, lying, or anything like that. I am not that person. I can exaggerate. So anyway, I never got an accurate weight, but that fish is at least, we called it 468, but it's close to 500. My son has since beat that to death. He, uh, What's Nick's biggest? You see that? Mammoth thing over there, seven hundred and fifty-seven oh, pounds. Oh, good lord! Yeah, that's him. Yeah, Nick. Uh, and Nick that was last this, year. Yeah, a couple of years ago. What does he do differently than what and then how you were fishing? What's, what? Um, does he tell you? Yeah, I've never fished much. I've never fished on that boat for swordfish. Um, Nick rode along with me the whole time. He's a little kid, you know, growing up. He was part of this whole deal. Nick is uh, a. <laughs> He fishes more in one line, which helps. He uses electric reel. However, if a guy gets on there and wants to stand up, he's good with stand up. Right. He does it the way the party wants. Um, and uh, so if you're fish, if you're fishing rod and reel, traditional way, the, the standard way is one rod. Yeah. And when you're electric fishing, you can fish two. 
Some people can, but you can get them tangled up. You got to sure. be good at what Nick fishes three sometimes. Does he? Yeah, he fishes buoys and I, most of the stuff again. I I just I got a quick question for you. So the IGFA is going through this um, assessment with swordfish and deep dropping, as whether or not it's legal to use an electric reel to deploy the bait and to retrieve a bait that's unfishable. So let's just say let's, you want to change your bait or change a location. So if you want to run 10 miles, it takes a long time to crank 1,700 feet a line back up into the reel. So you can use that electric reel to get your baits up to move. And you can use that electric, the electric reel to get it down. And then once it's down, you can fish legally for a record. And once that bait has been fished or you want to leave, now that bait is no longer available to be touched by a fish. So if you all of a sudden you hit the retrieve button and the bait's coming in and you get a bite, that fish does not count. Yeah. How do you feel about that? <sighs> Too much gray? Uh, you know, you know something, I, maybe the, you know, remember I showed you this picture right there. Yeah. I'm, I'm old school. Yeah. You know, and, um, I, I just, uh, you know, uh, I understand commercial fishing says it all right there. Commercial fishing has outstripped the ability for, for, for our fisheries, fisheries to be sustainable. And you know what I, when I, the reason I, I tell people, and it's true, I just quit sword fishing. I you know, ever see Forrest Gump. We just walked away. Right. I walked away and I walked away because, um, they were using harpoons. They were using electric reels. There were things going on, uh, that I didn't like, uh, you know, and, and I just, I was done. Um, but I'm not going to judge, uh, these people that are out there today. Right. My son, um, you know, he, he's caught plenty of fish the right way, what I call the right way. Sure. IGFA approved. And he's, he catches plenty with the electric, but I will tell you this. Uh, I told you before, I'm a boat driver and I take people fishing. I've never seen a person get off a Nick's boat to one happy. Right. Cause he's that person. Sure. So, um, yeah, I don't want to get into the debates. Remember I told you, that's me. That's uh, when I was a wreck fisherman. Those were all groupers and things like that, you know. <laughs> now, do you, do, you, do you influence? Here, here that's me. Those are mud snappers, <laughs> you know, things I like that. I mean, you look at all these dead fish. Yeah, and, I killed a and, lot and, of fish. And, and typically now, you know, you've got a big marine of 45 captains. Do you try to influence catch and release? Absolutely. Because I, I know a lot of people when they want to go dolphin fishing, let's just say hypothetically you have six people in the boat, the limit's 10. They bring back, you know, 60 dolphin. It's like, why don't you just bring back what you're going to eat and release all these other fish? Yeah. So instead of bringing back, you know, fish boxes full of fish, bring back one or two. Is that catching on with all the marinas up and down? Absolutely. The keys? Uh, yeah. It's, you know, what you're looking at here, when I'm, this is uh Myself, Alex Adler is in this picture. He's 13 years old. Every one of them mutton snappers weighs 15 pounds. Those fish were caught during what we call a spawning aggregation. Right. They should they protected. should They should protect every, and Goliath groupers do it. Cabrera snappers do it. Nassau groupers do it. They should, they should not be fished. And, but during I'm that, not. During that period of time. Yeah. I don't bottom fish. I don't kill fish. I don't, I won't kill any fish in the back country. You know, I always say, I hope fish don't have souls because I killed my share. But when I was young growing up, we never even thought about conservation. Right. You know, well, it was so plentiful. Yeah. 
So, you know, it's kind of hard for me, uh, you know, to judge people now and, right. uh, because, you know, because of, because again, I was, you know, I commercial fished, did all these things. Um, there, listen, there, believe it or not, if 20 years ago, the way things were going, I would have thought we wouldn't have any fish left. But believe me, between bag limits, size limits, closed seasons, educated anglers, we are doing better than I ever thought we would do. Okay, and uh, especially in shallow water. Like, I'm going to give you an example. Um, there was a time when, as a boat captain, myself and all these boat captains here, we made a fortune uh, mounting fish. Okay, there was a big lie there. Right. Boat captains in the old days lied to people telling you're going to get the exact fish. Well, that's not true. So uh, we had to make a decision. We made I, Since that decision was made, which is 35 years ago, I've, you've never seen a dead tarpon or a dead sailfish. You've never seen a dead uh, bonefish, anything on this dock. Is there, a, Where, is there a rule among the marina here? You're not allowed to bring a sailfish in? I would get like very that? upset if that happened. But under, understand something. This, the mount commission on a sailfish would be $500 today. There's nobody here killed a sailfish. So, yeah, you asked me, are we, are we doing good? We're doing good. The problem, um, I don't want to get into this. You, you've heard me mention this. The biggest problem I've ever experienced, and it's political, was Isla Mirada's and the Florida Keys' failure to enact uh, sewering right. up and down the Florida Keys. And you know cesspools, septics, drain fields, leaching, the growth of algaes that don't belong here. I watched it happen. I watched this community fight back and forth. I watched the, the federal government fail, the, the, the Keys fail. They should have had this done 25 years ago. They finally now just got it done. Um, there's some interesting things that have happened here. The soaring's not 100%, but it's getting close. I told you I bonefish all the time. I go four afternoons a week. Still? Yeah, I average five, six, sometimes ten bonefish in the afternoon. They're coming back. They're not as big. But they're here. I'm going to tell you another story. You remember Hurricane Irma? Yeah. Which did a million and a half dollars of sure. damage to this marina uninsured. <laughs> I won't forget that. You know what happened after that? The year before Irma, dead boating the way I do for bonefish, I never caught a permit staked up. I have caught 40 staked up for bonefish. I, I count them. Since Irma. Okay. What, this is what happened. The combination of no sewering, Irma comes and emulsifies it. I don't know how far down the toxins go in our bay bottom or the floor, but it flushed, removed, it. It flushed them. I was concerned it flushed so much and so rapidly it might completely overwhelm the bay and kill everything. It didn't. So right now, oh, man, we're not having algae blooms, you know. The water's a greenish color, but it's tolerable for fish like bonefish. And again, I hate getting into this subject, but you got me in it now. So, uh, yeah. If the government wakes up, you see what's going on in Miami right now, you know, with the soaring problems there. We need to protect this habitat. If we protect the habitat, we can get our fisheries back. And there are some things that are managed well. Yellowtail is one that they've, they've seemed to have done well with. Uh, they seem to be inexhaustible. Mangrove snappers, inexhaustible. Mackerel, you know, without Florida sportsmen and what they did in taking the netting out of the bay. You can catch all the mackerel you want. You couldn't have caught one before the netting ban. Right. So I'm going to... We're it's, on the right track. It's exactly. It's not perfect, but it's there's hope. You know, I got two little grandsons and going to have two little granddaughters, and I, I want them to be able to experience fishing as well. And you know, 
It's good. Well, thank you for your story. Okay. You are a huge legend. <laughs> we could do five podcasts with you, but thank you for your time. Uh, yeah. Well, you are awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's an interesting story. Um, your life from being a child up in Miami, growing up with Steve Huff, to becoming the legend you are as Steve Huff, you know, too. You know, you come it. full circle. I guess we're getting near the end, but uh, that's pretty much the sort of history. But I do. I want to tell you two more little things. Sure. Yeah, two more things. The first one was uh, I told you a story about my grandfather and catch my first fish and how he was my person that I fished with all my life. And this is funny. Uh, he made me get an education, become an accountant. My grandfather was in a hospital in uh, Queenie Towers in St. Louis, Missouri, dying, and he had a uh, tube in his throat, tracheotomy. He couldn't couldn't talk. I had uh, sat for the CPA exam, was with this accounting firm, and I went up there, and I walked into his room, and I got heartbroken as I was, and I said to him, Grandpa, I'm an accountant with a CPA firm, and he picked up a blackboard, and he wrote on there, why the hell do you want to do that? I don't know if this is if this is going to resonate with you, but my grandfather set me free. He made me get the education. But when he wrote those words, it gave me the confirmation, the freedom to chase the your freedom dreams, freedom to go out, and I did. I started. I bought a rundown bar with help from my father, made it successful, was able to work my way into buying a charter boat, and I told you how I got that. But uh, that was one of the, the moments of my life I will always remember. As Grandpa set me free. The other moment, and this is very important to me. Um, Nick was at the University of Miami property values that shot through the roof. And there's an article right here in the Miami Herald. And I'm standing on the, uh, the front there. And I had people come to me and offer me uh, an astronomical sum of money for this property. So I said, you know, I'm going to let them put this thing together. So they put this package together with the offer, which included some property over next door. And my son, Nick, came home. And uh, got wind of the fact that I was doing this. And he stood in front of me in tears and said, Dad, how could you think about such a thing? You got 45 boat captains, their families, and 15 employees, and I was born here. And I looked at him, and it's going to make me cry a little bit. And I turned down that money. And it's kind of funny. Um, and I would do it over a 1,000 times. And since that, we've had the, you know, the oil spill in the Gulf. We've had fires at hotels. We've had algae blooms. We've had hurricanes and things like like you can't even imagine the, the struggle it's been through. But there, uh, you know, but thank God, uh, you know, that 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 moment happened. And uh, and, and this uh, is your and, home. Exactly. And I'm going to I'm going to die here. Yeah. And uh, and my son, Nick, and uh, you mentioned you, you, I hope you get to meet him. He's special. And my son, Ricky. I didn't even get into my schnook stuff, but I got schnook stuff too. I mean, he's developed stuff back there nobody knows. We'll save it for another podcast. Okay. We'd love I, to do I, it. I'm sorry to. No, to it's, go perfect. On, but, uh, it's perfect. It's perfect. Well, thank you. you. I'm kind of. I'll say one last word. Uh, my wife uh, just today got. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, just had a mastectomy. And today, one hour before I came here, she got the word it didn't spread. She's going to get reconstructed and. Yahoo. And I came here and was able to That's talk such to you great guys. News. So yeah. I'm a little emotional. Well, congrats. I'm having a, a tough time with us. Well, thank, yeah. thank no, you, my Richard, pleasure. so much. And Wonderful. It's an such honor. Her name is Joanne, news. by the way. Well, hallelujah. Thank you, sir. 
That's Thank a privilege. You. I mean that sincerely. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I, I mean that. Us too. Okay. All right, pal. While his son Nick and his boat, Broad-Minded, are out dropping their baits in 1,700 feet of water, entertaining a worldwide audience, Richard is just as happy in three feet of water close to home. The torch has been passed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.